The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, it's a delight to be with you today and continue our our series in Romans chapter 9. And we come to some incredible verses that you've now heard read twice, one of them in Indonesian and one in English. Uh, It reminds me of the uh, two years that I spent with my wife and our two older children who were born at the time in Japan. And, uh, you know, it says in Romans, or in 1 Corinthians 14, speaking in tongues, if they're not interpreted, uh, our mind is unfruitful. <laughs> well, I was at least having some fruitful thoughts as I was listening to these dear brothers read and, and uh, pray in their native languages, speak in their native languages. And that is how great is God to reach out to so many different people with the same gospel. Amen? So that's a delight. And we're so glad that all of you who are our international friends are here to worship with us today. We're looking today at the issue of the justice of God in unconditional election. And we're asking the question about unconditional election. And the question that comes to us in the text has to do with, is God unjust in choosing people unconditionally? But before we even ask that question, we have to ask a prior question. Is it true? Is it a fact that God has done this? Is it a fact that God has chosen people from every tribe and language and people and nation, irrespective of anything he saw in them, but just for his own sovereign purposes? Is it true? Spurgeon had an incredible story, an illustration that I thought was remarkable. And uh, he was talking about the story of King Charles II of England and the philosophers. And they were getting together to discuss some things. And King Charles asked one of them, what is the reason why... If you had a pail of water and then put a fish in it, you had a pail of water and weighed it, and then put a fish into it and weighed it again, that it it would weigh exactly the same. Well, the philosophers debated and they discussed back and forth why this would be so. And they had various theories and they were elaborate and they went on and on trying to determine the reason why. And one of them kind of emerged as the best theory on why this was so. But finally, one of them asked a simple question. Well, is it true? And so they got a pail of water and they waited and they put a fish into it and waited again. And lo and behold, it weighed the same plus the additional weight of the fish. It was not so. It simply wasn't true. And so I think before we go on and on debating and discussing and trying to determine about unconditional election, we should ask, is it so? Has God actually done this? What does the Bible say? Does it reveal that God has chosen people to be his own? Now, I say to you that the biblical evidence for unconditional election is overwhelming. There's not a little amount of information about this. There's a lot. Look right at the verses that precede the ones that were read this morning. Look at verses 10 through 13. Not only that, it says, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Well, that would be evidence enough. But, you know, God doesn't stop there. There's actually a a wealth of evidence that God has, in fact, elected people. 
In uh, Romans 8.33 it says, Who shall bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? God's elect, another translation will give us. It is God who justifies, who is he that that condemns? Or in Romans 11.5, it says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if it is by grace, it's no longer by works. A remnant chosen by grace. Or, again in that same chapter, Romans 11.7, What then? What shall we conclude then? What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain. But the elect did. The rest were hardened. Or again, in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, to get out of Romans, 1 Thessalonians 1.4, it says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not just with words, but with the power, with Holy Spirit and deep conviction. All of that proved to Paul that the Thessalonians were elect. Or he says in 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his. And in another place, uh, John 6.70, After the eat my flesh and drink my blood teaching, and most of the disciples abandoned Jesus that day. And he asked the twelve, what, do you want to go away too? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Jesus' answer to that was, have I not chosen you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. Very clear on the issue of election. Jesus also in John 13, 18. He said, I'm not referring to all of you. This is at the time of the Last Supper. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those whom I have chosen. And he says in another place, in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And then again in that same chapter, John 15, 19, If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. You know, we really could go on and on. There's not a small amount of evidence that this is so. So it's not like the philosophers debating why if you add a fish to a pail of water, it weighs the same as before. It simply isn't so in that case. But this is biblically so. Now, an unbeliever will not accept the biblical evidence, but we're not speaking as unbelievers here this morning, are we? We're accepting biblical evidence, and it's overwhelming that God has chosen people. Now, the second question that's before us is, is God unjust in doing this? Now, Spurgeon says, concerning the fact of election, he puts it this way, what then is the use of our discussing any longer. We had better believe it, since it is an undeniable truth. You may alter an opinion, but you cannot alter a fact. You may change a mere doctrine, but you cannot possibly change a thing which actually exists. There it is. God does certainly deal with some men better than he does with others. I will not offer an apology for God. He can explain his own dealings. He needs no defense from me. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain, said the hymn. But there stands the fact. Before you begin to argue upon the doctrine, just recollect that whatever you may think about it, you cannot alter it. And however much you may object to it, it is actually true that God did love Jacob, but he did not love Esau. It's a fact. The question is, as we look at this fact... We react to it and we begin to ask a question and the question emerges, is God unjust in doing it? And that's the issue that's in front of us in the text today. Very issue that Paul takes up in the passage. Look at verses 14 through 18. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? (laughs) Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, Depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's 
mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens uh, whom he wants to harden. Okay, the issue of God's injustice is in front of us and it's going to take us perhaps as much as three weeks to answer the question. Probably it may take you your whole lifetime. Because, you know, you get to the third question. First of all, is it a fact? Is it a biblical fact that God has unconditionally elected people? Secondly, is it unjust? We're going to be looking at that this morning over the next few weeks. But the third question is, how do I feel about it? Can I accept it? Now, obviously, it will not change a thing in the universe if you can't. It won't. It won't change the fact whether God's done it or not if you can't accept it. Now, you may say, I can't believe in a God like this. You have that right. You have that power to say that. I remember earlier uh, in the church when we were going through a difficult time working on a doctrinal issue, I thought it was appropriate to bring in the evidence from Scripture that we do not as a church have the right to grab hold of the church and do whatever we want with it. We need to follow God's rules in the Bible. And a good example of that is the whole story of Uzzah. You remember how the ark was put on on a cart contrary to the word of God. They should have been carrying it with poles. And so they put the ark up there on the cart. And as they're going, the oxen stumbled and Uzzah reached out and grabbed hold of the ark. And at that moment, you know, he was just trying to help, it seems at least. God struck him dead. David was shocked. And it, it says he's actually angry. In the account. But I remember we were sitting there in a group of deacons who were trying to discuss something, and one of them had the Bible open and just recoiled like a, you know, when you bring two positive poles of a magnet together, just woo. And then he gestured down at the open Bible and said, I cannot believe in a God like that. I found the statement with the gesture together very significant. I can't believe in a God like that. That's really pretty big, isn't it, when you say that? It's really shocking. The fact is, God is like that if it's written in the account that way. He is like that. Now, we may have a hard time understanding why he did that. David finally learned the lesson. Oh, Acacia wood poles through the loops on the side. That's how you carry it. God told us what to do. But the fact is, as we read the scripture and we see right in the account what it says that God, God does, we're at a fork in the road. And are we going to get to the point where we say, I can't believe in a God like this? And if you do, what have you now? You don't have the Bible anymore. All you have is what you can or will or will not believe about it. And that's the whole issue. So ultimately, for you personally, it's very important whether you can accept this biblical teaching. Very important. Now, as people have wrestled with this throughout church history, they have had a variety of emotional responses to it. John Wesley gives us a good example of one. Uh, John Wesley, a great man of God, who did many, many things for the kingdom of God, led many into faith in Christ... When he died, I think he held the record for most miles on horseback, something like that. He may hold it still, I don't know, 25,000 plus miles on the back of a horse. Uh, Constantly reading the Bible, he was, they said, so saturated in the scripture that his blood was bibline, whatever that means. But anyway, just, if you cut him, he just bled Bible, okay? But in this one matter, when he came to Romans 9, he simply could not accept what was plainly written there. And he preached a rather shocking sermon against his good friend, George Whitfield, who did believe what the scripture taught on this. And in this sermon on free grace given in Bristol, 1740, 
he talked about the issue of predestination and election. This is what he said. This is the blasphemy clearly contained in the horrible doctrine of predestination. And here I fix my foot. On this I join issue with every asserter of it. You represent God as worse than the devil. More false, more cruel, more unjust. That's the word. But you will say, you will prove it by scripture. Hold. What will you prove by scripture? That God is worse than the devil? It cannot be. Whatever that scripture proves, it never proved this. Whatever its true meaning be, it, this cannot be its true meaning. Do you ask, what then is the true meaning? If I say, I know not, you have gained nothing. For frankly, there are many scriptures, the true sense whereof, neither you nor I shall know till death is swallowed up in victory. But this I know. Better it were to say it had no sense than to say it had such a sense as this. It cannot mean, whatever it mean besides, that the God of truth is a liar. Let it mean what it will. It cannot mean that the judge of all the world is unjust. Now, if I were talking to our good brother John Wesley, whose doctrine is straightened away now, praise God. And I look forward, by the way, to my doctrine being straightened away too when I see Jesus. Because there are flaws in my doctrine. I look forward to getting them fixed. I'd fix them today if I knew what they were. All I'm doing is I continue to read the scripture and keep testing my doctrine against what the Bible says. But if I were talking to our brother John, I'd say, John, it seems that you have some presuppositions as you enter Romans 9 that are being challenged. Maybe you ought to challenge them. Look again. But I know this. God is not unjust. And that is the issue that's in front of us today. The issue of the justice of God. Now, why does it come, come up at this point? Well, let's understand our context. Let's try to understand how this statement fits in, verse 14. Realize that Paul is addressing a problem in Romans 9, and the problem has to do with the Jews as a whole, as a nation, generally rejecting the gospel. Paul is going from place to place, preaching the gospel in synagogue after synagogue. They are rejecting the gospel. They are not accepting it for the most part. There are some that are accepting as Paul himself did. But for the most part, they're rejecting. Now, why is this a problem? Well, it's certainly a problem for them individually. But it's a special kind of problem in that the Jews were God's special people. They had been given special privileges, which Paul enumerates there in Romans 9 at the beginning. They were given these blessings. And so it seems as though God's word to them, his promises to them, has failed. God's word has failed because these Jews are rejecting the gospel. And that, my friends, is a crisis. If God's word to the Jews has failed, how do you know it's not going to fail toward you? We don't know. And so, therefore, this is a crisis of the first magnitude. Paul answers it in verse 6. Go ahead and look at it. But there in verse 6 it says, It is not as though God's word has failed. Why not, Paul? Well, here's his doctrine. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. There is a larger group of the biological descendants of Abraham, or Israel, but then there's a smaller group of spiritual Israel to whom the promises were made in the center there. And so God never promised that every single physical descendant of Abraham or of Isaac or Jacob would most certainly be forgiven of all their sins and end up in heaven through receiving faith in Christ. He never promised it and therefore God's word has not failed. And he gives two case studies, of course, Isaac and Ishmael, both of them physically descended from Abraham, but only Isaac, the child of the promise, a picture of God's supernatural work in all of his children. We are born again by the power of the Spirit. We are children of the promise. 
But Ishmael is a a child born in the natural way. He's a child of the flesh. And so you have Isaac and Ishmael, an example of what Paul's talking about. Then he brings in a better, even better case study, case study number two, and that is Jacob and Esau. Because an astute Jewish uh, objector would say, isn't it obvious the difference between Isaac and Ishmael? Isaac's mother was Sarah. Uh, but Ishmael's mother was Hagar, a Gentile. So that's the whole problem there. All right, well, what are you going to say now? As we look at the case of Isaac's wife, Rebecca, she has twins born in one act of marital relations. Absolutely at the same moment, you've got these two uh, boys, Jacob and Esau, born of the same father, same mother, in the same womb, before the twins were born, had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Very, very strong statement on unconditional election. So therefore, not just that God's word has not failed and that he never promised the whole nation of Israel to receive the blessings of the gospel. But he actually goes beyond it in Romans 9 to talk not just about a true spiritual Israel in the center, but how they got to be in that set and how the others got to be in the other set. And that's where the rub is. How, how, does the, how do the individual destinies get settled of who's in what category? And so he's going beyond to discuss that in this doctrine of unconditional election. Now, this election of Jacob and not Esau was done, according to Romans 9, 10 through 13, without any reference whatsoever to anything in Jacob or in Esau. He's not looking inside them for their works. He's not looking down the hazy corridors of time in the future for future works. He's not looking at faith. He's not looking at anything in Jacob or in Esau. He's looking within himself. This is a sovereign thing that he does, he alone. Now, as we are looking at this, if this is the proper interpretation a question is going to pop up into your human mind, isn't it? Now, that's unfair. It seems unjust. There's this matter of injustice with God. And so I think as we look at the questions that are rising up against the the interpretation we're given, it's good to see if our interpretation is accurate. And so the question floating up at this point actually proves that we've been tracking Because you know something? We human beings are used to merit rewarded, aren't we? We we know that. I mean, it's called an employer-employee relationship. If the employer meets the conditions, they're going to get the reward. If they do such and such, they get this. And there's no injustice there, and so that makes perfect sense. But if this is the case, then that's something we don't have a a way to understand. We We don't know how that works. And so the question floating up at this point, verse 14, is there then any just injustice with God, may it never be, actually proves uh, the interpretation that we've been giving. Uh, also the same question in verse 19, look down in, uh, further in the account. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? That floats to the surface when you have a sense of God's sovereignty and his power. And you can say, well, then God can save everybody. I mean, why does he find fault with anybody? Because he could be exerting his will to save them all. That's the question that floats up there. We don't have to deal with all of them today, praise God. We'll get to that one in due time. But this question is the matter of injustice. So the question kind of proves the exegesis. Now, this is Paul's usual pattern. He will tell us something in Romans. He'll bring up a doctrine, and then he will turn around and ask a question against his doctrine. Do you know where I think that came from? I think it came from just years on the road. (laughs) I mean, evangelizing in place after place, in Greek towns, in Jewish synagogues, these questions came to him. And he said, okay, one of you will say to me now at this point, such and such, because he's been doing this for so long, he knows exactly what people are going to say at these key moments. 
For example, if you look back earlier in uh, Romans 5.20, uh, Paul has been talking there about the, the doctrine of God's free and unconditional grace. We're not justified by works, but by grace through faith in Christ and all of this. And, and then he makes this wonderful statement that I think about probably every day. And that is where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Romans 5.20. Well, what's going to pop into your devious little tricky mind at that moment? Well, how about Romans 6.1 as a good statement of what might pop into your devious tricky little mind at that moment? What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that we can get even more grace? Doesn't that make sense? He's arguing against his doctrine. And then he's got to deal with the idea. All right, if sin abounds, then grace abounds all the more. Let's have lots of grace then, right? And then he deals with sanctification in Romans 6. Or or again, he'll do the same thing when he treats about the law. Look at Romans 6, uh, verse 14. He says, for sin shall not be your master because you're not under law but under grace. And so you say, oh, okay, I know. If we're not under law now, then we can sin as much as we want, right? You know, verse 15, what then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? How does he answer? May it never be. You see Paul's ordinary method here. He'll give you doctrine and then he will anticipate the questions you're going to think about, raise them up in his text, write the question, and then answer it. And he's doing that exact same thing here. He does it ten times, brothers and sisters. Ten times in Romans. He raises up a question and then answers it with something like, may it never be, or refutes that question. Now here... And that way, you can see the question then becomes a kind of a backward insight into the text. We have to come up with an interpretation in Romans 10 through 13 that will lead to the question in verse 14 of injustice. And that's exactly what's happening here. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. Whatever it is the apostle has been saying from verse 6 to 13 about God's purpose and the way in which he carries it out, it must be something that, on the surface at any rate, makes some people think that God has been unrighteous and that he is unfair. So in other words, if you're feeling like this is unfair, then we're right on schedule, all right? We're right on track. And so it comes up, this issue of injustice. And why? Because it seems unfair, it seems unjust, unjust, that God would, just for his own purposes, choose some and not others. That's the very issue. Now, how does he answer it? That's what's in front of us now. How does he answer this question of injustice? Well, it's kind of an interesting mystery. Look at verses 14 and 15. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? May it never be, or not at all. Verse 15 is the beginning of his answer. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You say, wait a minute. That seems to me like a restatement of the same problem. How is that an answer? How does that solve the problem? That's the very thing I'm asking, how you have mercy on some and compassion on... How does that work? And so we wrestle with this. We try to understand, how does verse 15 answer the question of injustice? All it seems like he's saying is, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, I have compassion on whom I have compassion. We want to say, but that sounds unjust. How have we answered the question? And he states it again very clearly in verse 16. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now, John Piper, a pastor in Minneapolis, who I've read a number of his books and some of you have as well. Um, In 1979, a sabbatical year was coming up for him at Bethel Seminary there in Minneapolis. And uh, he wanted to take a sabbatical and go to Germany. He wanted to study something in in the New Testament. And his supervisor asked him, well, what are you going to study? He said, I'm going to study one word. Well, what word is it? Well, it's the word for in verse 15 of Romans 9. 
I want to understand how I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion answers the question of an injustice in unconditional election. I just want to know that little word F-O-R, for, at the beginning of verse 15. Now you say, I have never taken a three-letter word that seriously in all my life to spend almost a year of my life studying to understand how verse 15 lines up with verse 14. Well, John Piper did. And I actually think that we should take the Word of God that seriously, shouldn't we? We should try to understand the flow of argumentation here. I want to know, how is God's statement here in verse 15 an answer to the problem? Can we follow his argumentation? Now, what I've done and what I plan to do this morning for the rest of the morning is just to take a step back and look over the next number of verses at the array of answers that God gives on this question of injustice. There's an array of them. I perceive six. There may be more. But there's an array of issues that float to the surface in these verses. And I think they absolutely deal forever with the issue of, of injustice with God. And those six reasons are the nature of God, the nature of justice, the nature of mercy, the nature of sovereignty, the nature of self revealed glory, and the nature of humanity. These six work together, in my mind at least, in my heart, to answer the question I have concerning injustice. I hope they'll do that for you. Now, what I want to do is just for the remainder of the brief time that we have left this morning, go over these six very quickly so that you understand what they are. I'm not going to support them with Scripture. I'll try to tie them to Romans 9, 14 and following. But I'm not going to bring in other Scriptures at this point to support them biblically. I'm going to do that, I think, God willing, in two weeks. Next week if the Lord wills, we'll kind of go together in our minds and hearts to the top of Mount Sinai where Moses met with God and made this incredible request. Now show me your glory. And that's the foundation of this statement. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And we will understand what happened between Moses and God on the top of Mount Sinai to answer this question of injustice. We're going to get some of those themes a little bit this morning. And then we'll come back to these six more fully in two weeks and then answer them with supporting scriptures. Okay? That sound good? I hope so, because that's what we're going to do. But anyway, uh, we're going to work together, and in this way, I hope after the three weeks, we'll have forever a sense laid to rest that God cannot and is not unjust in this matter. Let's start with the first one, and that is the nature of God. The New American Standard Bible, in verse 14, has it this way. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Now, I like that translation, because the Greek form of the question implies or expects, sorry, the answer no. In other words, there can't be any injustice with God, can there be? May it never be. So within that, we have a sense of God and who he is concerning this matter of injustice. Let's put this reason this simple way. God is not unjust in unconditional election simply because God cannot be unjust in anything he does. Everything God does is just. Everything he does is righteous. God's passion for justice burns brighter than the sun. And let me tell you, if you have a sense of justice, God gave it to you because you're created in the image of God. But your sense of justice is like a lit match compared to the raging inferno of the sun. God has that much concern over justice, infinitely more than you. So if you are concerned about justice, how much more than God who created you? Can it possibly be that God would be unjust? Is it even in the realm of possibility to consider that the God 
who has so clearly revealed himself in the Bible could be unjust for even a moment. And what are God's credentials? We'll talk about that in two weeks. But let's bring you to the highest and greatest credential, the cross of Jesus Christ. Some have said that the cross is a measure of God's love, and so it is. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But let me tell you, friends, that was not the only thing God demonstrated at the cross. There was another issue, and the issue was justice. And I mean not the justice of the reprobate, those suffering in hell. Oh, no. The issue is the justice of people like David, who committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Bathsheba's husband murdered to cover up his sin. How does a guy like that get into heaven? Now, that's a question. And we could say this. On the love side, God loved us so much that he would rather his son die than that we who are his own not spend eternity with him. Amen, and it's true. But let me say to you another way. God loves justice so much that he would rather slaughter his own son as our substitute than let any of us get to heaven without our sin paid for. How can a God like that, who is so passionately committed to justice, be unjust about anything? On to the next one, the nature of justice itself. Is God unjust? Another translation would be unrighteous. Well, what is justice anyway? What is righteousness? What is the sense of fair play? Where does it come from? Can I tell you that God himself alone is the ultimate standard of justice in the universe? Basically, if God does something, it is by definition just simply because he did it. God is not subject to some higher standard of justice and righteousness that he needs to obey and follow. All words and deeds, intentions, plans, and motives are brought up against this one standard of righteousness who is God himself. If it lines up with God, it is just and righteous. If it does not line up with him, it is not just or righteous. And righteousness, and this is from Piper's study, and I think it's true, Righteousness consists in valuing properly what is most valuable in the universe. If you value a human life, then we need laws to protect it. If we value property, we need laws to protect it. What is the most valuable thing in the universe? God's name, his glory, his honor. And God values his name, his glory, and his honor above all things in the matter of unconditional election. We'll talk more about that one. John Piper put it this way, God's righteousness is essentially his unswerving allegiance to his own name and to his own glory. God is righteous to the degree that he upholds and displays the honor of his name. He is righteous when he values most what is most valuable. And what is most valuable is his own glory. Therefore, God's justice, his righteousness, consists most fundamentally in doing what is consistent with the esteem and demonstration of his name, his glory. God would be unrighteous if he did not uphold and display his glory as infinitely valuable. We sinners, you know what we've done? We've stripped God of his glory. We exchanged his glory for man-made or human things, for idols. For all have sinned and what? fall short of the glory of God. God will have his glory reestablished. And so unconditional election does that. Thirdly, the nature of mercy. This one you can read right out of the text. But you have to notice what's happening. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? May it never be. For he says, I will have mercy on whom he have... Whoa, wait a minute. That was a switch. Just a moment ago we were talking about justice and now you're talking to us about mercy? Exactly. 
How does this argument work? Well, let me speak in plain terms. Can you imagine standing on Judgment Day and demanding from God justice? I want justice for what I've done. I want justice for my life. I don't want any handouts. I don't want any grace. I don't want any mercy. I just want justice. So just give me what I truly deserve and I'll be on my way. Is that what you want? We who are Christians have come to realize that that's not what we want. Justice will condemn us if not for Christ and his cross. What do you want from God? I want grace. I want mercy. Now let me ask you a question. Can a, a rebellious sinner, a flagrant transgressor, stand in front of a just court and demand mercy? Can you do that? Do you not kind of throw yourself on the ground and plead for it, beg for it? You beg for mercy, you don't demand it. This is not then ultimately a matter of justice. This is a matter of mercy. If it's justice, then it's hell. But if it's mercy, then it's given or it isn't. And that's how it works. The nature of mercy. We'll talk more about that one. Fourthly, the nature of sovereignty. Our God is God. He sits on a throne. He's a king. He's not a president. He's not a prime minister. He's not subject to cyclical elections. He doesn't care about, uh, about popularity polls. He's never going to send an angel to ask you advice on a matter of state or kingdom, I guess would be the right word. He's not going to ask for that because he's a king. He's sovereign. And the glory of his sovereignty is in making decisions after his own counsel, within him, himself, and not surrendering control to created beings. Look what he says in verse 15. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. That is sovereignty speaking. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And again in verse 18. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. Unconditional election, then, is not unjust because it best accords with God's proper position in the universe as creator and ruler over all that he's made. By electing based on his own internal prerogatives, God is upholding his right to reign absolutely over all things. His name is I am who I am. I will be what I will be. I will do what I will do. I will have mercy as I will have mercy. I will harden whom I harden. I will have compassion as I will have compassion. I am who I am. That is the God we worship. Amen and amen. He is a sovereign king. And we honor him and we worship him as such. The nature of sovereignty. Fifth, the nature of self-revealed glory. This is a new one that I thought about and it came to me. What did Moses ask God for on the mountain? Show me your glory. Do you not realize that's probably the boldest request in the history of humanity? Here is a sinner, a murderer, standing up in front of a holy God and saying, Show me yourself. Reveal yourself to me. So I got to thinking about self-revelation. I got to thinking about friendship. I got to th thinking about marriage. Could you imagine a suitor going up to a young lady and saying, Show me yourself. Reveal yourself to me. She'd probably call the cops. <laughs> on, a, on a more kind of reasonable level, as they're courting, they agree at some point when they stand before God that they're going to reveal themselves to each other. It's given or it isn't. 
It's true at a lower level for friendship, right? Can you demand friendship from somebody? Can you go to another person and say, be my best friend? It's not going to work, okay? It does, that's not how friendship works. That's not how relationships work between persons. My friends, if we who are dust, sinners, have the prerogative to befriend or not befriend, to marry or not marry, to reveal or not reveal, how much more the God of the universe has the right to deny this request that Moses made? Moses made a request. God could have said, no way am I going to show you that. But instead he says, I'll give you what you asked. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. We'll talk more about that next week. God is willing to reveal himself to you. Isn't that incredible? He's willing to open himself up in Christ. But he does that at his sovereign prerogative. It cannot be demanded. The sixth and final one for today is the nature of humanity. Who are we talking about that's got this claim on God? Are the angels asking, is there any injustice with God? No. We are the ones asking. Who is asking this? We human beings. We created ones. Now, there's two different ways to look at it. First, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes, some for common use? What does he call us then? We are the clay. He's the potter. He shaped us and made us. Do we have the right as created beings to look up to our creator and say, why did you make me like this? No. So just even if we were sinless, friends, if we were perfect, could we look at something God's done and say, that's unjust? No. You know why? Because God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are His ways higher than our ways. Do we understand all that God's doing? How much less then could we created beings assess Him properly, even if we were sinless, assess Him properly and understand everything He's doing and be in a position then to judge it or assess it? We never will be. He's the creator. We are the created. But that's not the case. We're sinners, actually. How's your sense of justice? Is it good? Would you put it up there and say, I have a perfect sense of justice? I would think not. I would think that we sinners, our justice has actually been somewhat corrupted. Our sense of fair play has been somewhat corrupted. We are therefore like blind people uh, who are going to be judging a painting exhibit. We're like deaf people who are going to be uh, judging a piano recital. I think the first one did really well. How can we sinners judge God's justice? How could we possibly do it? Isn't it better for us who are being redeemed and transformed and made more and more like Christ, say, someday I'll understand this. But I know that when I end up there, I will end up saying God is just in everything he does. Amen and amen. Now, what application can we take from these six that we've looked at quickly? Well, first of all, I hope that what I've been preaching about has kindled inside of you a sense of worship and awe for our eternal God. God does all of this for the praise of his glorious grace. He does all of this in a magnificent way that he would be honored and glorified. Then worship him today. Honor him today. Don't honor the created thing. Don't honor your own reason and your own sense of justice. Honor God, the God of the Bible. Worship Him and praise Him. Secondly, resist all temptation that the devil hands you, today or anytime, to feel inside you that God is unjust. We're going to talk more about that in the future. But things may happen to you. You may lose people or possessions that are valuable to you. And you may be tempted by the devil to say, God is unjust in this. It's unfair what he's done. Don't do it. 
God is always just. He's always righteous in everything he does. The third one I want to end with today is the issue of missions and evangelism. Will you take a minute and look with me at 2 Timothy 2.10? Finish up there. 2 Timothy 2.10. We are about, in a, in a few moments, to commission the Haiti mission team. And I'm excited about that. I'm grateful for these brothers and sisters that are, be going, that are going to be going forth from our body to minister in Haiti. Now, let me tell you something. Haiti is one of the most tragic countries I've ever seen in my life. It's very, very tough. There's a darkness over Haiti of spiritual oppression, voodoo, political forces, evil things swirling around in Haiti. Now, my question is, with what kind of boldness and confidence will these missionaries go forth apart from God's sovereign grace? Look what Paul says, therefore, in 2 Timothy 2.10. Therefore... I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That is Paul's secret of staying power in tough ministry. I'm putting up with anything and everything, being chained, being beaten, everything taken from me for one purpose. And what is that? That God's elect might be saved with eternal glory. He says that right there. Now, when we send this mission team out, they're going out to do a certain thing. It's sure and certain, absolutely secure. They're going out that God's elect may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Isn't that marvelous? There's no uncertainty to it. But if it were based on their efforts and based on the free will and the response of those listening, what are their odds of success? Instead, they're going out on a certain errand. Amen. So they're going out with courage. They are willing to endure anything disease and danger and all kinds of things are going to one of the most dangerous places in this hemisphere that they might take the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're going with confidence, I hope, that Romans 9 tells them that there's some of God's elect in every tribe and language and people and nation. Let's go find them. They're worth suffering for. Close with me in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.